the final season review to close out and wrap up the 2022-23 campaign before more of an offseason focus. Kevin Pritchard, the front office, how did they do this past season? Where did they do well? Where did they come up short? And where can this Pacers front office grow? We'll get to it all with Caitlin Cooper today on the Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome Another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI. And today, the final review of the 2022-23 season, Kevin Pritchard, the Pacers front office leader. What did he do well? What did this front office do well and succeed in in last season? What did they do poorly or less successfully? And where can they grow? Caitlin Cooper is going to join. We're going to get to it all today, just like we did yesterday for Rick Carlisle. I encourage everybody to check that out. And every player on the roster next week, back into draft stuff. Brandon Miller coming Monday. Lottery preview coming Tuesday. If you're into that stuff, it's coming. But today, we close the books on 2022-23 talking about kevin pritchard with caitlin let's get right to it don't cry because it's over smile because it happened it's the final 2022-23 season review for the pacers and it's kevin pritchard time the man at the top and talking about kevin pritchard similar to talking about rick carlisle is talking about the whole front office but he is the figurehead of it so he will be the man who we refer to today joining me to review kevin pritchard's 2022-23 campaign is Caitlin Cooper from Basketball She Wrote. Caitlin, this one is fascinating because we are not long removed from the Pacers saying we have completely changed our thinking. It's a long-term approach. Everything we did this summer was based on that, and now they already <laughs> are trying to accelerate that timeline. So a very strange year of both transactions and success that make defining this past year for the Pacers really fascinating from a front office perspective. Hey, you know, just right off the top, when we were doing these as player reviews, we had one play, one number, and one over under, and we've we've ditched that that formula. <laughs> but if you were gonna pick one clip of Kevin Pritchard, oh, there's only one, right? It's an obvious answer. The 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 Lakers on the floor after the Nembard three moment, right? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I think we should have picked one for Rick too. I think the one that we would have to pick for Rick is what, like the photo with Nelly, probably. <laughs> Oh no, it wasn't Nelly. It was Fifty Cent, wasn't it? It was Fifty Cent. Uh, yeah, I, I even watched. I the, even watched the video clip. Him, him standing next to Will Smith, uh, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell tries to get Aaron Neesmith to drink a beer before a basketball game. I think would be up there in my Rick Carlisle clip. That, that one probably is a bit higher. <laughs> Those kind of things in the season just make me love the NBA. Um, yeah, it's it it's really interesting to me looking back on this Pacers year of whatever transactions, team building, however you define what a front office person does, because if you just in a vacuum went back starting at, you could say July 1st, but really the draft is when a new season of moves starts and tried to grade every move they made from then to now, right? The draft, Mather and Nembard, that looks really good. Uh, the Brogdon trade ended up being better than I thought it was at the time. Neesmith looks solid. That pick, we'll see what it becomes. Tice, maybe they can flip. Jalen Smith, they somehow got on a three-year deal, although that didn't work out as well as they thought. It's still like a C-level move. James Johnson was a good vet. 
They waving Dwayne Washington and those other minimum dudes to try to sign Aiden. Very little long term harm. That may be the worst move they've made in retrospect. Signing Trevor and Queen, yeah, didn't really do much for them. They kept O'Shea Brissett around instead of sending him to restricted free agency. That one is TBD on the long term impact there. Uh, they made the Jordan Wara George Hill trade. They basically got two useful things for nothing. And they signed Gabe York, right? Every move, unless I missed one in that stretch, that they made from this from that draft until now, you could probably give like a C at worst to, which is good. But at the same time, it, it, I wouldn't quite give them like the the I don't know. They they just did a they did a really good job with asset management, but I also am, am curious about their direction committing between last year and now that makes it not the perfect way to analyze it, just going move by move. Does that all make sense? Yeah, and I think even somewhat from his presser and for reasons that I understand that that's not completely clear to us at the current moment. I mean, he did reference a few times when he talked to you guys that he felt that this was like they got two years of development in one. And I think that a lot of that mainly has to do with Tyrese Halliburton, if we're being honest, and him taking the degree of the step forward that he did. But at the same point in time, like he talked about like them wanting to be back in the playoffs, but I didn't feel like that was a hard commitment. I mean, there was many yeah. times where he talked about walking parallel. I mean, he even referenced, like he said pretty specifically, like we don't want to bring in, we don't want to use all five of those draft picks. So when he was talking about the different things that they could do at one point, he even said like, maybe we use these and we trade them for future draft picks, which would mean that, you know, you're not exactly trying to go all in on a move to get to the playoffs now. And I think too, some of it, and I'm sure you'll get into this is some of the moves that they didn't make. Cause like yep. ahead of, ahead of the trade deadline, they could have made a move to make a push for the play in tournament. And they evaluated where they were at and they didn't. Like they could have made short-term moves to try to push them into that spot. I mean, certainly that's somewhat worked out for the Miami Heat. They got out of the play-in tournament and now might be in the Eastern Conference Finals. And that's not to say that that's what trajectory the Pacers were on, but they showed some restraint there, I guess is my point. Wow, look at you using the Heat instead of the Lakers as your play-in to a conference <laughs> finals team. I can't, the, the NBA's got to be psyched. <laughs> the play-in's going to have this much, potentially this much success this year. Yeah, that is similar to what we talked about with Carlisle. A hard part of evaluating this is we don't know what they didn't do. We don't know what was and wasn't on the table. Like I can tell you that Kevin Pritchard run up on a, in front of, behind a mic twice and said, yeah, we tried to be aggressive and we didn't. Well, why is it that they said, and eh, we probably can't make the play in this year? Or is it that the trade to be aggressive and get the guy they wanted was too, was too much value for them to commit in the moment? Maybe that's what it is. Like, I don't know. I don't know who the players are. I don't know exactly what the move is. You know, I, I don't know. So it's impossible for me to say if it was or wasn't the right decision without knowing the value. I know that a lot of chatter around the NBA was like, waiting for a market reset on trades like that after Gobert and after DeJounte Murray's values. And Murray's wasn't like insanely high, but I don't think a team in the Pacers situation who, what were they at the trade deadline? Like two games under 500 or something like that should be like, let's trade three first round picks for a complimentary guy. Like, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. So I think that without knowing what they didn't have the option of doing, it's hard to say, but I think in general from June to right now, as I speak, they did a pretty good job, and this is where I would start with my success for Kevin Pritchard, of asset management. Everything that they needed to use this season or had the option of using between the sixth pick, the 31st pick, their late seconds, their cap space, their tradable assets uh, like Brogdon, for example, they got a lot out of them. And that's something he's typically 
in this front office has typically been pretty good at, whether that's from a trade perspective or just in general. They very, very rarely waste something. They sold the 60th, 58th, because there was two teams without a pick, right? They sold that pick for cash. I think fans should be mad when that happens. But that's the only thing that you could critique, whereas to me, like every asset they had and that they needed to do something with to enhance their team or enhance their long-term outlook, they did a pretty good job of that, the most notable being using their space to climb over the floor to renegotiate and extend Miles Turner, a super unique circumstance that they were able to do because of prior asset management as well, the flexibility, the optionality, whatever word he feels like using that day, you know, was perfectly on display there. I think that is where he has been good for a long time and was once again successful this season. I mean, and I think there's something to be said for the that front office for being patient. I think that's the way that I would describe them in most circumstances, that they don't just, you know, make a move to make a move. There's been times where I think we could all point to it and be like, okay, you know, after the Bjorken season, I don't think everyone thought that just keeping that same group together was going to go anywhere. And as it turned out, it didn't. But the deals that were there over the summer, not that they could have looked into a crystal ball and know that like, hey, the Kings are going to get somewhat impatient. There's going to be pressure on Monty McNair to bring in an all-star. And we're going to be able to get Tyrese Halliburton in February. But because they didn't settle for a de- for a deal when a lot of, there was a lot of outside pressure, like, hey, you need to pick one of these two bigs. You need to do this or that. Like this, this team doesn't have a high enough ceiling. There was the stuff about, you know, tough out rearing its ugly head again that summer. And... <laughs> They, they kept they they held on to their cards until the trade deadline and I think that they got probably the best possible outcome that they could get from that now is that all completely within their control no but there is something to be said for patience and it's similar when you look at the deal with Miles Turner right like I think I mean I I'm honest enough to admit when people asked me about that over the summer after they had given eight in the max offer sheet I was kind of like I think you're gonna have to move miles at this point because it's gonna be pretty tough to unring that bell like in his defense he knows like in the past when he's been you know and I don't even know that he was on the trade block but when they did try to acquire Gordon Hayward you could go to him and be like hey we need a wing. That's a position of need. It didn't work out. That doesn't mean that we don't value you. You know, going into this season, it's that's a little bit harder to sell to somebody to be like, hey, we just tried to give somebody a max contract <laughs> at your exact position. And there were a lot of people, myself included, that felt like, hey, you're probably going to have to move on at some point. You know, the Woj interview happens where he's basically discussing whether <sighs> the Lakers should give How up. How did I forget about that? Not. Like, I did not think that was going to be a possibility. And yet, you know, the season went on. The stuff, he, Miles played well well with Tyrese. Miles took steps forwards in a lot of ways. He liked it here. And we're to the point where they end up re-signing him. And Miles basically has a tweet where it's like, it was always you, Indiana. Like, that worked out better than I think anybody expected it to. Hey, guys, short little break here so I could talk to you about eBay Motors. For a championship team, it's all about making sure every player is a perfect fit. It's the same when it comes to your vehicle. Every part needs to fit just right. So the next time you need parts and accessories for your vehicle, head to eBay Motors. With eBay Guaranteed Fit, you can be sure every part you need fits right the first time around. Just add your ride to my garage and look for the green check to know the part will fit or your money back. Because just like in sports, confidence is the name of the game when you shop on eBay Motors. And with over 122 million parts to choose from, you'll be back in the game in no time. After all, it's easy to bring home a win when the right parts are guaranteed. Get the right parts, the right fit, and the right prices on ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. eBay guaranteed fit only available to U.S. customers. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That's a front office success. Mending that relationship is a big win, given where it looked like, like, 
they could have got value for him if they had to trade him, but everybody would have known they had to trade him. Like exactly. you're automatically trading from a position of weakness. So I, I, at first that was a lot of the chatter when Shams had the report that they're talking about an extension was like, this is a, a kind of a leverage plan. Maybe it was, but the, like they, they had no options if he said, no, I'm not signing anything besides trade him from weakness. So the fact that they, again, were able to get him on a, on a really, really good deal the next two years and and salvage that I think was really impressive. It's interesting looking back. I talked to you about this before we started. At some of their moves from last summer, because Jalen Smith was not an expensive signing. They they kept Brissett on his and let him go to unrestricted instead of re-signing him in restricted, which kept his value down. The Brogdon trade basically cleared as much salary as legally possible in trading away Malcolm Brogdon. And all of a sudden they had enough space for Aiton with just a few wave and stretches. I'd be curious in retrospect, you know, because they they were on this new long term mission that they described um, before the season, and how Kevin Purchase said he changed his thinking in the increments of years, and how that skews younger and yada yada yada. And Aiton is younger, so maybe they had a plan of like we know we'll have a chance at this guy, and they were clearing space in that way, or if it was just happenstance, because that would kind of influence the way I think about what they will do going forward. Because he talked about wanting to be aggressive or at the deadline and how that might be part of their summer too. Like signing DeAndre Ayton to 130, whatever million dollar contract is very aggressive, right? Like perhaps they've already done that. And, and the evidence is all screaming like, Hey, they're going to try to do that again. Or if that was just happenstance and then they were good and now they know they can be, you know, more, they're, they're more willing to be aggressive because they were a better team than they thought. It, I, I have a feeling there's a little bit of both going on, but uh, that that is something I'll be curious about, and that's that's hard to say it's a success, but that is a credit to the fact that they were able to have that flexibility, I suppose. So calling it a success in that they can run those tracks at the same time is impressive. Yeah, I'll tread lightly here because of the circumstances around the player, but I think one answer to that might be that there was rumors even before they had signed Aiton that they were interested in Miles Bridges. So clearly, it seems like they were willing to use that space and go after a player. Um, in my sense, I, I mean, people know I wrote a thing about DeAndre Ayton last summer. I thought that he would have paired really nicely with Tyrese. I understand where the thinking was. Clearly, Tyrese was part of that recruitment as well. So um, I think they'll continue to be aggressive. If, if we, you know, use context clues and based on other things that reported, it seems like OG Ananobi was the player that they were after at the trade deadline. And we don't know how prohibitive that was. It's like what you and I said before, there's no way to know um, what exactly was out there and what wasn't, but that's another player that I can look at and be like, you know, if you were designing a perfect fit at the four spot, the player would look quite a bit like OG on Anobi if it wasn't that exact player. So I can understand being as aggressive as possible in a lot of ways that kind of just signaled an overall shift in the way that the Pacers are operating on a lot of levels. I mean, they didn't use to play in restricted free agency. And I think we can both look at it and be like, yeah, that wasn't the most prickly offer sheet. The Suns didn't exactly give a lot of thought to whether they were going to be willing to match it or not. It literally took two minutes, but the fact that they were doing it does show to Tyrese Halliburton like, Hey, we're going to be willing to pay for talent to come here and play with you. So even if it didn't work out and it got matched within two minutes, that was a powerful statement to his teammate, because I know that Paul George has kind of talked about that in the past. And yes, Paul George talks in a lot of circles, a lot of the time, it doesn't always (laughs) make sense, but like not necessarily feeling that they were going to be able to go all in on surrounding him with talent is something that he's brought up. So that very early in Tyrese Halliburton's tenure is something that they've shown him. So that's a benefit to it. I mean, the Pacers could have had Anthony Davis, but there are no assets. Oh, I will not go into <laughs> With Monty um, Ellis and 
I don't know how much value Miles Turner had in the summer of 2017, but it wasn't that much. I can tell you that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think that that perception shift is good. And I think that they will still have options like that this summer. They have a lot of space. And in fact, the new CBA says, hey, you got to hit the floor before the season. Like they, they don't want teams to just be waiting to, to spend money on players. Players want that money spent earlier. So perhaps even more aggressiveness coming in free agency. One more success thing to me, and this is kind of two things that are the same. Um, actually, I'll, I'll split them up. The first one is scouting wins. <laughs> um, and this kind of dates back to Jalen Smith, but three straight trades they've made. The Jalen Smith trade, the Aaron Neesmith trade, the Jordan Ward trade were players that they identified that they thought, we like this guy before the draft. They're in a crappy situation. They have very low value now. Let's get them here where we can play them more, put them in our situation and see if they're better and all three have been that's a win that's a success the two that were the season were Neesmith and Wara I think that is significant and the other thing and this kind of ties into all three of these guys because they're young is Kevin Pritchard's MO maybe this is just me the reading into his actions I don't know if he's ever said this but in trades it's kind of been like they really like young talent with a lot of time left on their deal and I think that's been smart in their situation a lot of the time and it's part of the reason they're able to be in successful situations with flexibility and they did that again a lot this season. Yeah, because I mean, the Wara contract too, like even if they, I mean, he outplayed what my expectations were when they traded for him. That was clearly yep. a home run deal because you basically gave up pocket lint in order to get him to come here. But like, even Juan if they Pablo de- Valet is not pocket lint, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if they decide next year, like depending upon where the rotation shakes out, like that could be a potentially salary matching deal if he continues right. to play at that level. So that was kind of win, win, win. But I do want to ask you something that got reported last summer and get Uh-oh. your thoughts on this. Malcolm Brogdon mentioned last summer that there was deals on the table from both Boston and Toronto and that the Pacers effectively let him select his destination. Does that change your opinion of Aaron Neesmith at all and what the front office did? I will say I will qualify. Obviously, the front office has never confirmed that that is a thing that happened and that they did. And I think that Malcolm Brogdon at the time might have been trying to emphasize how much of a sacrifice he made and going <laughs> to Boston and that he was going to be coming off the bench. But this is what Malcolm said happened. So, um, yeah, I think you're you're right to say that. And here's another thing I think, and I think this a lot. Like when when a team makes a trade and their fans immediately go, "That's terrible value." What are they doing? It's like. Do you think these people are stupid? Like, do you think they took yeah. less value on purpose? Like, no, that's just what the market was. And so to tie that into what you just asked me is, I think that if, for example, the Wizards were, like Brogdon brought that up when I talked to him when he came back to India. Like, the Wizards were a part of it before the draft and they weren't. But, um, like, had one of the three teams' offers been, like, significantly better than the other two, I don't think the Pacers would have done that because I think that, they would have taken the one that's significantly better. And so I say that all to say, I I think it's possible what he's saying is true, but I think it reflects that they viewed the Celtics and Raptors offers as very similar. And then we're wanting to say, Hey, let's, let's make this a bridge that we can build together and look good. And it did work out. Um, Obviously, Neesmith looks like a solid player, but that is what I believe to be part of the case potentially is that, they did not view the value difference between what the Raptors were offering and what the Celtics were offering as significantly different. Whether that's, I don't know, Malachi Flynn or Precious Achua and whatever their first was going to be. But that that's that is my take on it, even though I don't know that. That's just a prediction. Yeah, I mean, I think the most charitable endorsement of it is what you just said, and that 
you know, what will that say to other prospective players that come to the Pacers that they were willing to work with Malcolm Brogdon and send him to a place where he could be most comfortable and be competitive. But at the same time, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement for Aaron Neesmith when you find out that like Malcolm Brogdon <laughs> picked between Malachi Flynn and Aaron Neesmith. Like if it's Flynn, I don't know who it is, but yeah, yes. no, I'm just saying like, right. I don't know. I don't, I didn't completely know how to, to take that at the time. So I wanted to hear what your input was. It doesn't necessarily seem like you identified that talent on your own at that point. If you're letting uh, <laughs> Brogdon make the decision. Yeah, I agree. And it, it depends on how negotiations with too, right? Did they call up Boston and Toronto and they made the offer and then they both got accepted and they, you know, it, it, a lot of channels would need to be investigated to fully figure that out. But I am generally of the mind that front offices aren't intentionally sabotaging exactly. themselves. Yeah. So there is a definitely more to it than what he said, even though I believe what he said is likely somewhat true. And Brogdon would, help, would have helped a number of teams. He's been pretty good for the Celtics in this postseason. Non-successes. Oh, go ahead. I was going right. to say, on the other thing on the Brogdon front is, you know, signing him to that extension. I wonder him coming off that Achilles injury, how much that impacted things. Because, I mean, a, a summer prior, before they signed the extension, he wasn't trade eligible. You know, people were talking about – and. Ben Simmons is looked at in a different light now than he was back then. But like the people weren't laughing at the idea of trading Malcolm Brogdon in a first round pick to the Sixers for Ben Simmons. And a year later, you know, after him going through that injury, there being more years that a team has to take on, you go from that to getting a late first and Aaron Neesmith, which I mean, Aaron Neesmith worked out well, and it's good to have three first round picks. I don't think anybody's complaining about that, but it is a different valuation than what people were expecting to get from him 12 months prior to that. And I think some of that could be that positional weakness stuff we talked about, right? Where it's like everybody knows what the Pacers situation is. Like they're not going to be kicking down the door. To pivot to non-successes, uh, I am one of the only people who feels this way. But Kat, you you talked about it earlier. And Kevin Bridger talked about the parallel paths part of going forward. And I tend to think that that is a bad strategy. And like it, it, it is possible to pull it off. The Boston Celtics in the late Isaiah Thomas, early Jays era did it pretty well. But it is kind of hard to blend a young team with youth you're trying to develop and a roster that you're trying to win and succeed with at the same time. It's po- Again, it's possible, and maybe they can pull it off. But it's really hard to do that and manage your assets constructively Without picking a direction, I think. And I'm a big a big fan of front offices who pick a direction and go with it. That's why something about Memphis that always has impressed me is even when they're good, they're still committed to a long-term approach. And so he mentioned the parallel paths, and maybe that means they're not going to be as aggressive as it sounds like maybe this summer, and they're going to try to organically grow, as he kind of said. But to me, that is not the approach they should be taking. They should either be leaning into 45, 50 wins going for, going for it, air quotes, or continue to say, hey, our core is three guys who are 24, 21, and 23. Let's stay young for a little bit and be patient and strike at the right time. And you talked about their patience in the last segment. So maybe it works out. It has for some other teams. But like the Warriors' depth right now in the playoffs kind of sucks because some of their young guys aren't ready for it, right? Like there is, it's hard to pull off, I think. And so I think that is is a non-success to me is that that is what they're hoping to do next is the two paths. I guess it depends how long it drags out. Like if, if right now he's communicating that from the standpoint of, you know, we're modeling our options and we need to find out exactly what's going to be available. And we're not going to fully know that until the draft. 
may I think I can get behind that, that they're going to keep walking sure. both lines and determine which is the best outcome. If you get to the point where it's the beginning of next season and what you just described is the, is the line of thinking that they're going to keep trying to do both of those things, then I think that would be a mistake. Um, like I'm, I'm very valid answer of this last year, you know, the Toronto Raptors, or if the Raptors continue to do what they're doing, you know, you have Scotty Barnes and the development path for him wasn't super clear this year in part because the context for each of those guys isn't super good. Like, you know, you can pick certain combinations of their starting lineup that you like, but then when you think about the other three people that are around them, it's not really conducive to optimize any of them because they're trying to maintain, or last year, you know, they're trying to maintain the last vestiges of their championship with Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam on the roster. And certainly Pascal Siakam's the most important player to what they're doing. But what's that doing for Scotty Barnes and the young, the player that's most likely to be on your roster the longest? What you're saying is true. I think it's very hard to do both of those things. And that's why I did give Rick Carlisle some credit on the prior episode, because I think balancing both of those things and still being able to point to, okay, some of these young guys still got better is challenging when they were overachieving to the degree that they went. So I think I would land on the side of it that if this is still a conversation at media day next year, where this is still like they're still walking both sides of the fence and they're still presenting it as a good thing, then I would be more critical of it than if it's something that it's like, this is what we're thinking about now because we want to have as many like keeping all of our options open going into the draft and then we're going to make a decision from there. Yeah, June 22nd will reveal like they're they've always been an action speak louder than words kind of org, which is fine. Uh, I think we'll learn a lot on draft day about how they really feel about what that path is. Like if you pick someone young that you like and can fit in and then you go like i'm just make i'm making up free agent names i'm making this up i'm not reporting anything i'm making this up like and then you go sign like harrison barnes and a martin twin or something like right. what 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 did that do you know like that that wouldn't make sense to exactly me. Yeah. so uh, uh, but they have to use their space in some way like it's complicated but I am not a fan of that type of thinking, even if maybe like from a raw asset perspective, like, yeah, you got good stuff for your space. You got good stuff with your pick, but like your team doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, you, what is, how have you accentuated your identity that we've talked about so often? That's something that I think is a kind of a TBD, but th- that thinking is not ever my favorite from a team building perspective. And I'll be curious what they actually end up doing. Also, I'm curious what you think about this. If you, if you even view this as something that can be evaluated as success and failure, they talked about Kevin Pritchard said he, he studied China and their long-term inc- increment thinking and all this stuff. And so they are pivoting to a longer term approach. And that took a lot of front office meetings and all sorts of that kind of stuff. And that's really hard to do to have an organization change your thinking completely. And then six months later, they have accelerated through two years and one year, and they're ready to be a little better and go for 45 to 50 wins. I don't know how to view that in a success versus failure context because the reason they're thinking about already changing back their thinking is because their season was good and successful, right? Like that in in itself is a success. But, you know, should should the carrot being dangled in front of their face so much really make them already shift back? I I don't know, right? Like we talked about this on the on the Rick part a little bit. It's like if you're, you know, exceeding expectations at first and then kind of fall back to earth, but you still have a better than expected record. Like, did you really have a better season or was it just like a couple months of, of success? You need to be maintaining your approach. So I don't know how to feel about that, but I think that like 
even one more year with a lot of what they have of maintaining a longer term thinking approach would do wonders for what it allows them to do going forward. And I, I just am curious what you think about that and what you think about the sudden shifts twice really in a year of approach to their team building. Yeah, I mean, what we talked off the top about when I made the joke about what clip would you use and you bring up, you know, Kevin Pritchard storming the court with the team when they got that <laughs> win over the Lakers, like that was kind of one of the major high points of the season. And I remember talking about that on on our podcast with Mark when we got done and both of us were kind of like, you know, this is very reminiscent of the 17-18 season and it's really hard to pull the plug when you have those types of vibes. But in the long term, is this necessarily good that they've stepped out and, and gotten you know, better than what people thought they were going to be. Like, would you have rather had, you know, and we don't know where the draft lottery will happen, where they'll finish next, next week when that all is said and done. But like, would you have rather had another really high pick to pair with Tyrese and Benedict? Um, there's no way to know completely what that value is. I mean, you don't know when you get into a play in tournament or if you get earlier than expected playoff experience, sometimes that can be somewhat enlightening too, about where exactly you're at. And that's not some evidence that the Pacers have. Like people get defended more in an exaggerated way. And that can be revealing of things that you need or you don't need. So sometimes yep. when you're a team like the Cleveland Cavaliers and you get there quicker than you expect, it's like, oh, well, we were pretty far from beating the New York Knicks in that series. And this illuminated where some of our weaknesses are. And there can be value in that. Um, so I don't know. It goes back again to my whole line of thinking, which is, you know, where when is the evaluation on how good they are being made? Like if they're doing it, yeah. you know, in the draft and free agency and it's like, okay, there weren't clear cut moves that are going to vault us into a 40, 50 win series. Then I think it would be better to continue to be willing to be like, Hey, take a step back. And this is another developmental year for us. Yeah, I agree with all that. And it's, it's part of what's going to be tricky about their next season. Like I already said it, but if you pick someone eighth, for example, like, you know, you're going into a playoff expectation season with three guys who are clearly they're still on their rookie deal. More of the guys than that still on their rookie deal. Like that's fine, but I think expectations have to be a little more reasonable in that case. And maybe what that lends to, to to go back to what you said about getting into the postseason and seeing what you need or don't need is like one year deals, right? Like let's sign someone decent-ish on the wing to a one year deal and see how that plugs in with what we're doing and fits in the playoffs. And then we can reassess with the same cap space next summer because that player's expiring. But at the same time, then if that player is the perfect fit, you don't have the same tools to keep them. And so that's why one-year deals are super risky. Like the Tyreek Evans one-year deal turned out to be great because they could get out of it. But like that was sort of that to me is like, let's see how another handler fits with Vic and fits with the team we have. And if it's great, we'll keep trying to have someone like that. And if it doesn't, then we won't. And that was different for many reasons, but you know, like that idea sometimes makes sense and perhaps could this summer. And that would kind of be marrying up with what they've said and what makes sense to me of, you know, going forward a little bit this year, but still maintaining a long-term approach. So maybe one year deals are just what they'll do. That's super risky because you could just be losing good players. So there's a lot of factors to this that are going to be fascinating to me. And it all kind of comes back to the two timelines. I hate to use the warriors phrase, but you know, the parallel paths wording of how this is all going to look. How do they commit to their next team? Yeah, because it can get complicated. Because, I mean, not to rehash things, and I don't think that the 
the script has fully been written on Chris Duarte and where he's at, that will be an answer for season three, Chris, to answer if he's more who he was as a rookie or if he's more who he was as a sophomore. But if we look back at that, I think most people would probably assume that like, you know, they signed Rick Carlisle to be the coach. They intended to be competitive. They wanted to get that group to the playoffs. They did not retain Doug McDermott. So they drafted a player who they thought, you know, was going to potentially be, you know, rotation ready. The thought process on Chris, because he was older, was that he was going to be able to play and in play and be that movement shooter and replace that for them. And now it's like, you know, a year later, they're back in this development mode and maybe you make a different selection there if you know that going into it. Maybe you, you know, take the higher upside swing potentially. Maybe they just liked Chris that much regardless and they still would have selected him. But, you know, that that is what happens when you don't necessarily... I don't want to say they didn't have a clear path and they couldn't have anticipated that TJ Warren would have another foot injury and that Karras would have the back injury at the beginning of that season, but it wasn't necessarily, I don't think the most, and I hesitate to use this word, but the clearest assessment of where they were as a team, like that there probably isn't that much more, you know, water to wring out of this group here. We've probably reached what it is and, you know, we don't need to find people to plug into this. In fact, we need to move on from it. So, you know, it all worked out for them in the end. They did get Tyrese Halliburton as a franchise player, but that might've painted their decision in the draft differently. And that draft is kind of like the perfect representation of what I'm trying to say. Like they drafted one guy who they thought would be ready-made and can be on their current timeline. And then they drafted Isaiah Jackson, who was clearly a project and longer term. And it's like, what, which path do they want right now? Like even you can draft two ready-made players. That's fine. Like the Pelicans did it that year. They picked Trey Murphy and Herb Jones and they're both in the rotation right away. Like you can do that. So it, it the two paths thing, the parallel passing can be complicated. And I'm not saying they're committed to trying to do that dance, but I worry about what that will look like given what their first season was. We'll see. I, I feel like I don't even know if I can call that not a success because they haven't done anything, but the, the the consideration and the past history of what they have done means they have to be careful thinking that way, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because I mean, even with Isaiah Jackson, he was he was pegged more as somebody like this is going to take time. Yes. And knowing that it's going to take time and then, you know, I, I still think there should have been more expectation that Jalen Smith was not going to be a four. And maybe there was internally and they just projected it that way outwardly. And they just liked Jalen Smith so much. They're like, you know, we'll give him, we'll promise him a starting spot. We'll see if he can play the four. And if he can't, we still really like him. Maybe that was the thinking, but you know, you have five centers on the roster and the guy that you did make the upswing bet on in the draft the prior year, you buried in the rotation. And, you know, it, it's somewhat, it's it was somewhat ironic that I think before they played the game against Phoenix, Kevin Pritchard talked to you. And I think he had a quote somewhere along the lines that like at the end of the day, we have to figure out how we can keep developing because that's how we're going to be great someday. And then in that game, Jalen and Isaiah Jackson didn't play <laughs> until it was garbage time. And then that was like a few days after they had waved Goga Batate. So it's like, you know, by the end of the year, Jalen and Isaiah were playing. They had shifted toward development. But I think that kind of speaks to what you're saying. Like, it seems at that point in time, it seemed like Kevin Pritchard realizes, like, as a small market team, the way we're going to get better is, you know, organically with these guys improving. Well, then there needed to be, you know, a clearer path for that, at least with regards to one of the players they had drafted. I should have included the go-go waiver when listing the moves they made this season at the beginning. That (laughs) That might have been, the like, contextually the worst one, even though it made sense. I don't know, Serge Ibaka. That's a pretty, that's a pretty tough waiver. You know? <laughs> I still, 
who was I talking to? We were joking just how funny it is. Oh, Derek Kramer at iPacers blog. Just like, it's so funny. There's a graphic out there of Serge Ibaka in a Pacers jersey. It's just, I didn't know that. Just for the waiver announcement. <laughs> Even though he didn't show. Also, that like two days later, I saw somebody in a bootlegged Ricky Rubio number 99 jersey at a Pacers game, which I thought was just the funniest thing I've ever seen. That's like something you'd see at Vegas Summer League. Like, that's that's <laughs> a niche right there. You're hardcore if you have that. Ricky yeah, Rubio. That, uh, I wanted to ask Ricky Rubio about that, but I, I didn't get the chance to because he didn't play in one of the games I saw him at. Um, so growth areas, unless you have something else you want to bring up on not not successes no i think in both cases with rick and with kevin there's not like a very lengthy list to provide here right now in the present they had a good year for weaknesses i think they both had a pretty good year so pretty good year. growth areas we'll see what matherin and embards year two looks like because after duarte and jackson's not so successful second years you can point to the draft still right it looked like for a second when matherin was popping and and Duarte looked good and all this stuff that maybe they had solved some of their draft woes from the past. Like their best pick from 2017 to 2020 was Edmund Sumner probably in that stretch. And like, he's a good player, but you know, now you want your best hit to be over a four year span. You know, it looked like they had something solved a little bit. And then Duarte and Jackson, the, for the reasons we talked about on this, weren't all that. If Mather and Nembard are, are great again next year and, they hit the pick this year. Maybe they are growing in that way, and I'm overthinking this, but I, I still wonder if they if they need to be better in the draft. I, every team wants to be better. Like That's a continuous goal, but that is a growth area for the Pacers, I think, is the draft and the continued development of said players. Yeah, because I mean, I think it's even more important for them to nail that last year and this year than in other years in the past. But not only because they have single-digit picks, but because they are, you know, more committing to that and realizing that that how important that's going to be for them to get back to where they were. They're not, you know, being so much in the middle anymore, where they are just like, let's go sign this complimentary guy and try to make a push into the playoffs. So if you swing and you miss, it's going to hurt a lot more. Yeah. Um, especially this year, I feel um, with Tyrese now being able to sign to an extension, most likely this summer and where they're headed there. Um, you want to maximize his window as much as possible and give them the highest possible ceiling that you can. And, you know, I do remember that, you know, when Isaiah Jackson had his big game against the Clippers and we were all talking about that, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, but look how the Clippers were guarding him. Like that's, that's not going to keep happening in a year from now. And they're even early in the season against Benedict at times, like they were playing the San Antonio Spurs. And I'll never forget that. Uh, I believe it was Zach Collins ran away from the nail to rush at Terry Taylor above the break. And Benedict just goes straight down the lane and either dunks it. Or I don't remember. That was the third game of the year when Benedict was on like the absolute, like Michael Jordan pace scoring terror. <laughs> it's like, okay, no one, no one six months from now is going to run at Terry Taylor above the break away from Benedict Matherin. Like he's not going to be seeing this exact same type of coverage. So, you know, it's, it's easier to evaluate where those guys are at the more and more scouting reports they could put on them. I still think that we're going to be looking favorably at both of those picks next year. Maybe that's a little too optimistic of me, but it goes back to our player reviews that at the end of the day, Benedict is still very good at drawing contact and that's going to help him whether a lot of the other stuff in terms of whether he makes shots or not. And I just think I believe in Andrew's overall guile and savviness enough that he's going to be able to provide a significant amount of a floor. You know, maybe we adjust where we see his ceiling based on how other teams guard him. But I think between his smarts and his defense, we're still going to be looking at those favorably, but you're absolutely correct. Like if it does look different in the light next year, similarly to what happened to Chris early this year, 
then I think that, you know, there's a pretty significant red flag there because most of the guys that they've drafted are yep. no longer on this roster anymore. TJ Leaf, not in the NBA. Goga, it remains to be seen. Aaron remains to be seen. Um, so, yeah, not one Turner, of their strengths over recent times. Turner's their first pick to sign a third contract, and I forget who it was. I was going through this exercise. With it's it been a while right since that it happened and some of that even even turner himself predates the current front office right of course but you know uh well, i guess pritchard was in the front office not the head whatever you get what i'm saying like they there are that is rare that is super rare and their draft history has not been particularly good and i harp on the draft because i think pritchard's a very good trader in mm-hmm. terms of timing and what he emphasizes and how they've done like their track record is like the worst trade they maybe have made was getting Levert for Oladipo. Like that might be the worst value trade they've made in five years. That was a good deal at the time. Like they have done really well timing and value wise on almost every trade they make. I think they're a very good asset management team. I think they use their cap space more constructively than most teams every year. And so for the big picture team building things, the draft is certainly their biggest growth point. Now there's all the micro stuff, the development that he talked about that they have to get better at. And I think that's a continuous goal for every team. And so I would include that in the draft part is continuing to develop those players after picking them. That is certainly where this front office's biggest growth area is. I don't think there's any argument that it's their biggest weakness, I guess is maybe not the right word, but something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I I don't, I think stain sounds too harsh, but if there's any blemish to what, Kevin Pritchard's tenure has been since he took over from Larry Bird. I think that that's the thing that people would point to. Cause otherwise, like I remember last year before the trade deadline, like there was a lot of outrage and I kept being like, can we at least see what trades they make before we all get mad online? And cause I think, you know, I would rather have somebody fix what the issue is that's been there and understands that locker room and has a very solid track record of making trades. And the other point of that is, is they had signed all of those guys to very favorable deals where it felt like reasonable yeah. that they could get out of that, that they could find a way forward and, and pick a direction. And they did get a pretty clear direction. And I think that's another aspect of this too, that like, I think that we can point and say that from the top down, that everyone seems like they're on the, the same page. And that because like, you know, Kevin Pritchard mentioning like, you know, it's going to be me making decisions and Lloyd Pierce and Kevin Pritchard and Tyrese Halliburton. Like, I don't know how many franchises around the NBA you could point to and see that much synergy between the front office, your head coach and your best player and involving them all. And that you, you know what direction you're going in. So I think that that speaks well of them, too. I sympathize with some who say, like, do you give someone credit for fixing their own mistake? And like, I hear that. That is true. But also, I don't know. I, I struggle with this a lot with decision makers from NBA teams. Like, and I'll use this example. I've talked about this in the show before. If you think the Victor Oladipo trade was awesome for the Pacers, which I think like getting him for Paul George, if you think that was awesome, which I think Benny would say it was, then you have to be super, super, super critical of the Kawhi for George Hill trade, right? Because you are then basing the trade's outcome on the result. But the process of the George Hill Kawhi trade was pretty good. <laughs> and the process of the Victor trade was in thought of at the time to be less good. So how do you evaluate what a front office person is doing? Is it at the time or is it the result? Because even the team that just failed the era before this, that they had to pivot out of the process with almost every decision they made at the time you go, that was good. And then it didn't work. So what, how do you, 
you know, how do you discuss that on the way out? Do you, are you really critical and say Kevin Pritchard dug this hole and now he has to dig himself out? Or do you say it just didn't work, even though the thinking was good every step of the way. And now he gets the grace to get out of it. And he did a great job. They're in a great situation right now. So there's always some middle ground between those two lines of thinking, but I, I, that is, he did a good job pivoting out of that. Yeah. And I think too, that like, I know people don't like the small market excuse, but I do think that small markets have to take more risks on guys with injury history than what's the case in other places. They had to do that in order to, you know, cobble together what they hoped would be a more competitive group. And the truth is we'll never fully know what that team could have or could have been if, if they were healthy earlier in that timeline and continued to build around who Victor Oladipo, the player was, you know, prior to him suffering that injury midway through. So, I mean, in terms of like having to get out of the mess, they did navigate their way out of it. And I think, you know, I also think that sometimes like when you're talking about coaching hires, we tend to think about the fact that like a coach is who he is. Like we we're willing to open our minds and think that a player could improve over time, but we don't think about a coach improving or a front office member improving or learning from prior mistakes. And I think this year it seemed pretty evident to me that they were really valuing durability especially in last year's draft. Like obviously Kendall Brown suffered a significant leg injury, but if you look at those picks, those guys had not missed games at Arizona and Gonzaga and Baylor and making different decisions on who they're willing to bring in and how much risk they're willing to incur. It does seem like that they've adjusted their thinking on that. So, I mean, I think that, I think that as a front office member and as a coach, you can adjust your approach and you can get better at things. And I don't think that we're always willing to open our minds to that, that like just because this is the way that Kevin Pritchard looked at something when he worked at Portland or when he first took over with the Pacers doesn't mean that's the way he's going to approach it next year or the year after that. Carlisle, perhaps the poster child for that with the way he evolved this year. <laughs> is, is that a way we should talk about coaches now? Like Will Hardy's whatever he is, 36, so he's got a lot of room to grow because he's young <laughs> for a coach. But Rick's in his 60s, so he does not have as much room to grow. Or does that only apply? I get that the difference is players have athletic peaks, but I think that would be a funny way to evaluate <laughs> decision makers in the NBA. Got to hire a young guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it doesn't and that's sort of guarantee it either because I don't think we right. would see – I don't think that there was necessarily a lot of change from Nate McMillan over the years or even with the Atlanta Hawks. Still running a ton of floppy even though it's a very outdated <laughs> mode of offense. Still doing it, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that every coach isn't going to be able to be willing to adjust their approach. So, you have anything else you want to discuss with Kevin Pritchard? I don't think – I don't think I had any other points to bring up that, you know, would have been – necessarily i mean we don't necessarily know where they're going to go from here and i guess that's what we've been harping on throughout this entire episode that it's it's tough to know the direction but i'm pretty confident we'll be it will be very clear after the draft and at the start of free agency or at least i'm hopeful of that oh i i think the day after the draft their direction will be obvious i mean there's no there's no way for it not to be i mean to be to be fair five days from now Five days from now, their direction could be obvious, but but we'll see about yeah. that. Obviously, that is in the fate of of the ping pong balls. I, I think that a lot of the key figureheads for the Pacers had really good years, and they're headed in a good direction, and that is a good thesis to land on here. Caitlin, where can people follow you and your work covering this Pacers team? 
at C2 underscore Cooper is my Twitter handle. If you go there, the link in my bio will take you to my Patreon, patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote where you can find all of these reviews. My what's next on my docket is the draft coverage. I've been watching one specific player, but you know, the closer that we get to the draft lottery, I have like these fears that it's like, Oh, if I write all of this and then they suddenly <laughs> move up, it may no longer be relevant. Cause you know, there is the world where, you know, they get the first overall pick Tony and we only need to write one, one draft profile and we're good. Merci. There won't, there won't be a lot Merci. to talk about for like a month's time, but it will be very clear and obvious. Uh, no comment, but I believe that that is also correct. Hey, hey if that pick doesn't hit, do you give that one on Kevin Pritchard or do you put that one on everybody? Uh, yep. Everybody, everybody gets a negative, everybody a negative on the planet, review pod. I'll re- I'll give myself a negative review pod talking about my bad takes. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this series that Caitlin and I did. Nine episodes, Caitlin. We really dug into this team. I had a good time. I hope you did too. I did too. I hope everybody was willing to withstand me being on the YouTube channel this often and endure that. So thanks for hanging in. Thanks for listening to us. This was, you know, I don't know how many hours this racked up to be, but I feel like it should be pretty exhaustive for everybody if if you watch the Pacers this year. I hope so. I hope so, certainly. Next week is lottery week, so of course, we'll be breaking that down here at Locked On Pacers, looking at all the prospects relevant as well, once it's known where the Pacers' position is. Looking forward to digging into all that. Everybody have a great weekend. See you soon.